0: Welcome to Recover Strong, a show that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. I'm Jessica Flint, founder of Recovery Warriors, and you are listening to our podcast channel created specifically for you in all the stages and phases of recovery. I want to celebrate you for carving out this special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started.
1: Warrior. I'm your host, Andrea Wells. And just like you, I understand what it's like to live with an eating disorder and be held back by body image struggles. The recovery journey is ongoing, and we're all in it together as we learn to embrace new behaviors and new thoughts day by day. Join me as I connect with eating disorder experts and thought leaders to give you the tools, resources, and strategies you need to recover strong. Today is a five things feature where you get more recovery wisdom in less time. And each week we talk about five things related to recovery. Today's topic is five ways to overcome food and exercise obsession. And I'm joined today by Jessica Flint. You know and love her as the founder of Recovery Warriors, a global movement and education platform that has helped millions of people recover from an eating disorder. Welcome, Jessica. Hello, Andrea. So happy to be here. Uh, Great to have you again. Thank you for joining me as we continue in the new season of Recover Strong. And we'll have you on here for a few more episodes, and then we're very excited to have some new guests and experts on the show in the coming weeks. And of course, dear listener, you will still be hearing from Jessica on the podcast channel as we continue with the Fear Less series and on her new show, Love and Learn, coming out later this year. So now let's get into our five ways to overcome food and exercise obsession. Today's topic is inspired by a question submitted by a longtime listener named Alex from New York City, and she shared the following, quote, I'm always thinking about food or always thinking about the next meal. I look at what other people eat and compare it to myself. I feel like I need to burn everything off. I always have these strong urges to binge and punish myself with exercise. Did you have similar issues? How did you handle them? End quote. Oh my gosh, Alex. So I actually know Alex as a
0: listener. So I just want to give you a shout out, Alex. You're awesome. And yeah, I mean, Andrea, that was like the whole, I would say like the the eating disorder in a nutshell was all of these things, right? The obsessive Mm. thoughts. Like I'm talking obsessive thoughts. Uh, So today what we're going to talk about as we go through this is kind of getting into this idea like what do we want to be free of these obsessive food and body thoughts and exercise compulsions so we'll do our best to cover such an big all encompassing topic uh, which is just so you know part of the eating disorder recovery process but yes alex we we see you And we understand this. Yeah,
1: I can confirm as well. I've been there too. And thank you for asking that question, Alex. It's very insightful. And I'm excited for Jessica and I to get deeper into it, share more about our similar experiences and some tips as we get into these five ways to overcome food and exercise obsession. Number one, neutralize food. So we live in a world that puts thinness on a pedestal and along with that comes like the glorification of certain foods, certain foods that are perceived as healthy or might make you thin. When you eat those things, you can feel like you are doing good. And when you don't eat those things, if you're eating foods that are demonized, that society considers to be quote junk food or quote fattening, that can make you feel like you're being bad or you've done something bad or society regards it as bad. So overcoming the food obsession that drives an eating disorder requires neutralizing your relationship with food and really acknowledging that at the end of the day, it is just fuel for your body. It's it's an energy source. And Jessica, how have you approached neutralizing food in your recovery journey? It's started early on right with starting
0: to look at like where did i have this good food bad food list or foods that were acceptable and foods that were not acceptable the foods that were not acceptable were the ones that i tended to binge on or and then would engage in blemic behaviors around so those were the ones that were kind of like off limits yet somehow i would engage with and have them but they were never really truly accepted and so it started to look at like okay where are these two polarities? So I like to think about this as a polarity. Think about your batteries, right? Like or or a magnet is a great way to look at like a polarity. And there's going to be a positive and a negative charge and we know based off of magnetic theory that like that spells like and and opposites attract, right? So if we have these extremes in our our psyche and our the way we we view food psychologically, well then we're going to have a, a power struggle. Essentially, we're going to have this tension that's going to result from these an attractive force that's going to try to like, grrr. and that's what I find with the urges were so strong because I had such strong polarities on what was good and what was bad. Like there was a very strong feeling inside me that this is food that I can have, this is food that I can't have. And when I neutralized that, so it's starting to bring that, as you're saying, like neutralizing it, bringing more into the center, then it lost its power because it just. it was was food was food and it didn't have that extreme like pull on me uh which I find is so much of those urges are like because you can't have it or you're not allowing yourself to have it Uh, and you know I remember back when I was further along in my recovery so this wasn't you know like and I was in a relationship at the time with a Spaniard and in Spain they um do these things called Spanish tortillas, which is just like this fried potatoes that you fry and you mix it with eggs and you make this little omelet. Essentially, it's it's delicious. And I remember, you know, we were living together at this point, just like crying. Like I was crying because he was frying these potatoes. And I was just thinking like, oh my God, like if I, like th- like being in a this is going to make me fat. Like you're going to make me fat. And I was just like freaking out about that and in crying and recognizing that like that was something that if he wasn't in the room I would have been eating and I wouldn't have been crying about and then I would have been beating myself up after so when I started to neutralize food it, it was more too about allowing myself to eat these foods with other people instead of behind closed doors where then I would have these like really big guilt trips after and and feel you know so obsessed then about well now I have to fix this now I have to compensate for this and um uh, you know, that was such a healing relationship, you know, cause he, he didn't have that fear like around food, making him fat or anything like that, like around certain food groups, changing his body size. And so, so being in that relationship was really healing for me and that helped me neutralize food. So I would say sometimes being around people who have a more neutral view, or I would say being around people who have more neutral views of food can really help you start to come from that black and white and start to, to see food in, in more of that all foods fit. Gray zone. It's it's not one or the other. You you're good if you have this, and you're bad if you have that.
1: Yeah, no, I resonate with that so much. Um, A big word that that came up for me a lot in my recovery journey, especially earlier, was deprivation. Feeling deprived. You know, like I want a certain food. Society and family tells me that food's bad. If you eat that, you've done something bad. Something bad's going to happen to your body. That just made me want it more feeling like you can't have it it was like the forbidden fruit right it's that's a really good way to describe it i think from my experience as well it was like i want that forbidden fruit the more you're told it's forbidden the more you you salivate for it and that's what fueled binges a big part of my recovery journey as well was intuitive eating so that aspect of like unconditional permission to eat that gave me my power back with binges and food because once you realize i i have permission to eat that i can eat it then you can really get to a place of you can take it or leave it. And that felt so counterintuitive. And I know that can sound counterintuitive. Like, wait, no, if I give myself unconditional permission to eat, then I'm really going to binge more than I already have been. But I was surprised to try it, to finally try it and see it's actually, it does the opposite, which doesn't sound like that makes sense, especially if you haven't practiced it yet. But once I practiced it a couple times, I'm like, this really does take that forbidden fruit off the pedestal put it on an even playing ground. And practicing that over time helped a lot with neutralizing food. And yeah, just really acknowledging that, like, those messages that society gives about healthy, unhealthy, clean, whole, like, there's so many different sneaky labels that you have to watch out for when it comes to diet culture. They don't mean anything. Like, food, food is food. And something that's helped me neutralize food is thinking about, like, so people, a, a big trigger for me was calling food unhealthy. I, I heard that a lot in my family. Unhealthy means fattening and being fat is bad. These are all these are harmful messages that I was given. I have a hypothetical analogy, which is that if you were stranded in a desert, didn't have a food or water for weeks, you're on the brink of death. If you saw, if you came across one of these foods that's considered junk food, bad for you, unhealthy, you, that, you would be running to get that, that's going to save your life. And that kind of helps me see like all food is technically healthy. It's all life source. It's all fuel. Do different foods have different nutritional contents? Yes, of course. Do different foods, will will some upset your stomach? Will Some make your stomach feel good? Yes. But it, it doesn't mean that it has to have these moral judgments and moral words attached to it that can really harm your relationship to food.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, it's also, it's like the permission is acceptance, right? And I like to talk a lot about just like accepting all our emotions, but it, it like when we accept something holy, it does lose the power that it had in terms of like when we had the resistance to it. So food, I think, exactly is just like emotions. They're exactly the same thing. One's just a physical thing and one's something within you. But the the both is the more that we resist and the more we say that this is good and this is bad and I don't want to live with this, then the more it just becomes encapsulating and just takes us over. so I like there's a quote I love by Carl Rogers where he says quote the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am then I can change and I've always liked to reword that as the curious paradox is when I accept food for what it is as you just said Andrea when I accept food that it's just a fuel source then I can change so that's what I found was instrumental in the eating disorder recovery process was to start to allow myself to have all of these foods outside of when I would normally have them in more destructive, like in in the cycle, right? It was more like just allowing them to be a part of my life. And then they no longer had the power over me. And so I stopped engaging in in these cycles, but it really had to do because I had to detach from the idea that this food was bad and this food was going to have a negative repercussion on on my body and my health. And when I started to let go of that, I it all just came together. So it was really tied in with acceptance and permission, which yeah. is neutralizing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you really realize that all food is fuel, you need it like your body needs water, like your body needs air. It's not a bad thing. It really puts all food on a level playing ground and things change, just like the quote that you just shared. So no, something called junk food isn't going to hurt you. What really hurts you is continuing to fight with yourself over food and obsessing over it. And neutralizing food is what brings peace. So now let's move on to our next way to overcome food and exercise obsession. Number two, use mindful self-observation. So the definition of observation in mindfulness means attentively and non-critically noticing your current thoughts, feelings, and surroundings. So this mindful self-observation can help you in combating food and exercise obsession. And Jessica, can you share a like hypothetical example of how someone may use mindful self-observation in a moment of struggle around food and exercise obsession?
0: Yeah, Well, first, it's the awareness, right? So we want to draw in the awareness because until we are aware of something, we can't change it. When we do start to see, okay, wait, I'm aware that I'm having a compulsive thought or an urge, or I'm aware that I am judging my body. I'm aware that I'm judging what this person's eating. I'm aware I'm in comparison. So just being really high level, I like to think about this as like the scientist, like you're in your lab coat. You're either going to look at it like you are a specimen under a microscope and you're just observing it or you could be with the telescope, however you want to look at it, whether it's distant or just close up. But you can be more detached from what is happening, the actual circumstance and every like, there's, like, this big storm. Also, another way I like to think about it is, like, there's this big storm that's going on, right? And we see this when we look at hurricanes, and we see the the meteorological weather map, and we see, like, w- w- this big swirly mass of clouds in the system, and it doesn't really look that dangerous, right? You're kind of just like, yeah, there's a big white blob that <laughs> just <laughs> is, is sitting there, and then, but then you see the pictures of people in the actual, like, hurricane, and it's like, whoa, like, their cars underwater. Like this is crazy, and the like trees are blowing. So it's like when you start to use mindful self self-observ- mindful self observation, you're becoming more of that like distant, like looking at the weather pattern from up higher, and you're allowing yourself to see it from a, a, a more detached perspective. You're not in the thick of it, and when we begin to observe our thoughts observe our urges. So this is regardless whether it's a food thought or an or exercise thought, an urge to engage in a food behavior or, or an urge to engage in an exercise. The more we can observe without acting on it, this enlarges our freedom to choose how we want to respond. And so when we can just sit there and have that moment of peace, of clarity, of just starting to be like this is what is. Then you can start to work on some practices to self-regulate because generally when you're in such an obsessive and strong urge state, there is some form of dysregulation within you, Uh, whether it's anxiety or just some form of emotional dysregulation that you're just not feeling safe and secure and you want to be able to come in self-regulate and self-soothe without having to engage in the behaviors in order to do that soothing. And you can work on in this hypothetical situation, you can work on just recognizing the boundaries of your body. And that can be challenging for some people, but just just knowing like I'm in, I'm in a body. I'm not, I'm not dissociated. I'm in a body right now. And then you can ask yourself, what is happening? What needs my attention right now? See so these are just questions. You can get curious, no judgment, just like what is happening? And you you talk about it in in a more of a detached, like what is happening is I'm having intense thoughts of in doing this. What is happening is I can't stop thinking about this. And what wants my attention right now? And that could be maybe an unmet need that you have, an emotional need, physical need. Um, sometimes you could actually just be thirsty, you know, or like you could be tired. So starting to tune in to like, what, what needs my attention right now? Um, where do I feel out of balance in my life? You can start to think about other situations, maybe interpersonal ones going on with your work or your family or your partner, just anything that is coming up, your friends that could be leading you to feel uneasy or impacted by, with strong emotion. And, and then generally you can ask, you know, what is asking for my acceptance so all of this really ties into the, when we look at self-compassion, this mindful self-observation is one of the, one of the main components. There's three components of self-compassion. This is a, is a foundational. So it's, it's a cornerstone of it being able to now ask, okay, what what needs my acceptance and, or what is asking for it? What needs it, what needs to be accepted? The fact that I am someone who struggles so much with these thoughts uh, someone who struggles with obsession struggles with with an eating disorder, right? That that even can ask for your acceptance. And then when we are in this mindful self awareness, this is then the best time to draw in loving words of kindness or just words of encouragement, or showing that you are there for yourself. So essentially, when we can give ourselves attention, that can help soothe us. So you can then you know hand on your heart or any type of self soothing um, gesture. You can say. May I love and accept? May I love and accept myself just as I am? Or what would it be like if I could accept life and accept this moment exactly as is? Other things that I will say is like, darling, I care about your suffering. I care that this matters to you, because also when you look at it, and these may be a little more higher level. You guys are probably like, but I care about the food. Well, like we want to say like, well, why does the food matter to you? Like, why does the food matter to you? And we'll get into these other things as we go through, but like, what, what meaning have you attached to the food? That's the main thing. What meaning does the food have? Why does it matter to you? What, what are you attaching this to? What, what does this mean to you? And so the more we can find that meaning from a detached place, we we can start to work with it and rewire it. And There's a quote I love by uh, Tara Brock. She has a a book called Radical Acceptance and she says, quote, perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love, end quote. So in these moments where you are frightened by the intensity of your thoughts in these compulsions and these urges, there really is something helpless that wants your love. And- this could be worked at on on this mindful self-aware level is just starting to see that from a clearer perspective, higher up perspective.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. I'm thinking about back when I when I was really deep in my eating disorder. And I'm thinking about how underneath it, underneath it all really on the surface, yeah, it was stressed about food, stressed about body. But underneath it, it was just wanting to be accepted, wanting to be loved, wanting to feel good enough, wanting to have a sense of control. There are a lot of deeper things under it, and thank you for breaking down mindful self observation. That was really helpful, and you always have such a beautiful way of explaining things. So thank you for that. And as we wrap up the topic of mindful mindfulness and self observation, um, I have a couple more tips to share, and these are things that have helped me as well using mindfulness and self observation in my recovery journey. And one is that realizing that these thoughts that you feel around food and body and the, the the distress that it gives you, it's not In absolute truth, you can choose to not identify with your thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts, and that's another aspect of mindfulness as well. And when you have an awareness of your obsessive thought patterns around exercise and food, it helps you to step back from them and disengage. A lot like what Jessica was saying: like are you are you the scientist looking through the microscope, or are you in the petri dish? Like you know, there's a (laughs) (laughs) different. So stepping back really helps you have. more perspective to find some more peace and make a recovery-focused next step. So practicing mindful self-observation separates you from these thoughts. Remind yourself that the thoughts are not truths, and these can help build your self-worth and help you move forward in recovery. So this brings us to our third way to overcome food and exercise obsession. Number three. Avoid comparisons. So you know what they say? Comparison is the thief of joy. And this could not be more true when it comes to food and exercise obsession. So if you're struggling with these things, maybe you see people in your life or on social media who post pictures of their food. Like that's a thing. You got to Instagram your plate, right? Or people post videos of themselves at the gym. It can make you feel like, I should be doing what they're doing. I should be eating what they're eating. And that just leads to further distress around food and exercise. And I know I used to struggle with comparison a lot when I was deep in my eating disorder, when that came to, yeah, what are people eating? How do I measure up to that? Am I eating more than them? Am I eating less than them? Are they eating, quote, healthier foods than me? Quote, better foods than me? Um, Are they moving more than me? Like, what kind of exercise are they doing? There's so much many ways to compare. And it just really fuels the obsession and the distress. And these things like we all have this innate human desire to fit in, to belong. So when you compare yourself to these things people are doing, it it fuels your eating disorder. You feel like you have to be there. You feel like you have to fit in. You got to do what they're doing. And another thing I want to throw in is like social media is lies. So if you're comparing yourself to social media, do you know how many people – put on gym clothes and go to the gym and take a picture and leave. Like people do that. And there's nothing wrong with like, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to do these things, but society tells us that these are things that you should be doing. These are good things to do. So like social media is fake. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're comparing yourself to people. But even then there's plenty of real life examples. Like you go to, you go out for a meal with friends, you can compare your plate to them and stuff like that. So, Jessica, I'm curious, what type of role did comparison play in your eating disorder and how did you work towards avoiding comparisons?
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I love how you brought up social media because, I mean, I
0: recovered during a time where social media wasn't really big. I mean, it was like Facebook. So social media never was a big player for me. But yeah, it's a very filtered environment. And I think what's interesting about social media, because you can think about it with your own self with recovery, is how many days do you feel so dead inside and just like with the eating disorder and just feel like depressed, right? I mean, a couple of period, like eating disorders are dark. <laughs> I mean, at least when I'm going, yeah. like, I remember it's, it's, it's dark, it, there's dark times, but then you show up with a smiley, sunny face uh, or trying to just put on like the, the happy face. Everything's cool. There's that pain inside. Right. So I, yeah, I just want to put out there that what we see in the outer world and social media can be very filtered. And so you don't know if these people are struggling with eating disorder themselves, you know, or just things like that. Yeah. Like, uh, and yeah. In terms f- for me, with comparison, it was definitely a lot of body comparison was a big thing that I had to to work with, and uh, but, but comparison too would be with looking at what other people were eating and what. What I was eating, so I was always judging what other people's plates had on it, and how fast. Sometimes I try to like eat at the same rate as them because I'm a fast yeah. eater, you know. And like, yeah, I would try to like measure bite by bite, but then I'm like, this is excruciating because like, how do they eat so slow? <laughs> you know, and, like, so I'd be like totally out of like myself in trying to like be them or be how they eat. And so for me, it was it was a big thing. It really was. Comparison came up a lot in my recovery, um, I would say more in the development of the eating disorder that, that was, I think in comparison really drove that because it made me feel like I wasn't good enough as I was, or like what I wasn't eating was right. So I I was looking outside of myself too. And part of the recovery process was coming back into myself and claiming my, my, my natural, um, body, my, my appetite like how much I want to eat, uh, not not be limited. Like I have to match them bite for bite. And yeah, I'd say that was a big thing. And and even now it's it can be easy to still compare at times around like people who are at certain points in their life and what they have and what you don't have. And even in recovery, comparison can come then. Like why am I not – why are they like better than I am at this point? And I've been doing it the same amount of time or more. And just I, what I've always found uh, Solace and just relief in is this idea that when I'm in somebody else's business, I'm not in my own Meaning, then who's taking care of my life? So when I'm judging or like comparing myself to others, that means I'm leaving myself. I'm not in my lane. So if I'm not in line, not in my lane, that means I'm not in my car. So who's driving my car? Who's driving my life? Nobody. And we're not. Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah, like we're not autonomous like (laughs) vehicles yet. Like it's not Elon Musk driving my life. Um, So it's like, yeah. I want to be in my car. I want to be driving my life. I want to be moving forward. So the moment I get out of that to get in somebody else's lane, then I'm not. And so I need to come back to myself. And so I always I will say that, like, whose lane am I in right now? Or like, whose business am I in right now? I can't control how much the people around me eat. I do have people in my life that are very dear to me that have extreme restrictive disorders like anorexia. And it's very hard to watch them not nourish themselves. But I can't. I can't do anything about that. I, I really can't. It's out of my control. And when I'm in their lane, then I'm out of my lane. And and so more accidents happen when you're not in your in your lane, you know. So uh yeah. So I'd say that that's for me. Yeah, avoiding comparisons.
1: Yeah. And I think I, I like that you brought up like comparing yourself to other people because and I think it's really important to highlight here that everyone's bodily needs are different. Even if the whole world had was free from an eating disorder, everyone had a healthy relationship with food, equal access to the same type of variety of nourishing foods, everyone would consume different things, different amounts. Everyone would have different energy needs. We're all so unique. We're different shapes and sizes and the things we need to consume are so different. So what's most important is honoring what you need in your body and recognizing that someone else is going to have a totally different physiological makeup and they're going to have different things on their plate. They're going to have different ways that they move their body and different ways of operating. And I want to wrap this one up with sharing like your own physical needs change and fluctuate hour by hour and day by day. And something that's really made me feel so secure and confident about this in my recovery journey is that I eat the exact same breakfast every day. And that's not coming from like a place of ritual or disordered. I love it. (laughs) I love eggs. I eat eggs every day. I wake Mm, up. It it makes me happy. Yeah, same. It's nourishing. So I eat the same breakfast, the same amount every morning, 99% of the time, unless I'm traveling or something. And I've been doing this for years now. So I've got a couple of thousands of days (laughs) of practice of this. And some days I eat that same meal. And I'm good to go for like hours and hours, like five hours. Some days I eat that same meal and it's an hour and a half later and I'm like, I'm hungry. <laughs> like I need more. And that's really highlighted to me how your own body has different changing needs all the time. So just because you eat something one day doesn't mean you're going to need the same thing the next day. Like don't compare within yourself. Your your own body is so fluid and ever changing. So it just really highlights the the importance of don't compare Your needs to others, even within your own, like remember it's going to fluctuate and just focus on listening to your body and giving it what it needs in the moment, not what your friend needs, not what someone around you needs. It's what you need in your body.
0: I love that you mentioned that because so much too, like what I, that was a huge awareness of mine with my recovery it made a big difference once I noticed that my hormones drove me to crave different things at different times, to have more of an appetite at different times. And so if we go with the whole diet mentality, you know, it's like you want to baseline caloric need and that's go over it and oh my gosh, you know, stick underneath the line. Like, you know, And, and so I would always be like, I need to have this many calories today. And whoa, no, we are like, we are not static. We are like just like the tides. We're not machines. No, yeah. We're human. We're bodies, yeah. <laughs> We're bodies and some days it needs a lot more and other days less. And so it's like I've, I've recognized that when I when I was able to hold that with like uh, compassion and, and not comparing like you said, just to be like, oh, okay, today I had more and yesterday I had less or, you know, and I'm hungrier now than I was the other day. And just being like that's because my body is is ever changing. And its its needs differ day to day, depending on even how cold it is
1: or how hot it is outside, like all these things. Yeah. Even if you laid in bed every single day and didn't move, you, you would still have different needs. You're, you would crave different things. You would eat different things. And then you're going about your life doing different things. It's always changing. So thank you for highlighting that as well. It's very helpful. And I hope that this advice can help you, dear listener and Alex, with overcoming food comparisons. So now let's move on to our fourth way to overcome food and exercise obsession. Number four, stay consistently fed. Now, this one can feel counterintuitive, kind of like what we talked about earlier with the uh, unconditional permission to eat. It can feel so opposite of what your eating disorder is telling you. I remember when I first heard the concept of staying consistently fed, I was like, what? Like, no, that makes no sense. I need to do the opposite. Eating consistently is just going to make me binge or lose control. And it's another one of those things that it's like a paradox. It does the opposite of what you think it will do. And the reason behind this is because nutritional deficiency and physical hunger are what drive obsessive food thoughts. If you are hungry you're going to think about food. If you're thirsty, you're going to think about water. So staying fed, staying nourished is so important. And nutritional rehabilitation is so important for anyone, no matter what your body size is. So if you're in a larger body, this still applies to you. A lack of nutrients affects your emotions. It can affect the way you process thoughts, your intellect, your performance in life. So nourishment gets you in a good brain and physical space to take on the harder and deeper steps of recovery. This is
0: our brain. <laughs> our, like, our brain is an organ, right? And so when we, and it's our dietary lifestyle, it's what, how, how are you feeding our physical body? And that impacts our biology. And that also can impact, for example, our neurotransmitters can be a factor into this too. Like how much dopamine are we getting and what's our relationship with dopamine? So when we look at this staying consistently fed, we're looking at this physiological part of of our our body and and it is essential to stay consistently fed and in some ways i think about too why this can lead to if you're not staying consistently fed lead to imbalances is think about other biological drives that you have, right? So with hunger is a biological drive. Uh, to go bathroom is a biological drive. And to breathe air is a biological drive, right? Meaning that we need these in order to survive. So when we look at going bathroom, okay, have you ever had a full bladder and you cannot go pee? Like how much did was pee on your mind? Like how uncomfortable to start to get, how much are you like, ah, like, oh my God. Like, so there's one thing you can see, like when I have to go pee, you don't hold it and you say, you can't go pee yet. You don't deserve to pee. Like why, who are you to think you can pee? You have not worked out enough to go pee right now. Like, come on, shape up a little more. Then you can go pee. Like, that's not how it works. Like we don't, so there's like, we are an intuitive peers and in the moment that we have to You know, hold it back, then we're like, oh my gosh, like we feel that physiologically. And so that relationship there, like you have more compassion for yourself when you have to go pee. You don't judge yourself when you have to go pee. Some people do have small bladders. Andrea, you go pee a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I do, yeah. And there's like no judgment there, but it's like you don't judge yourself. You're like, oh my god, like, I, like, I gotta pee. I go pee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you gotta pee, you gotta pee. Uh, when you got, and so the other one I've always helped me like think about too is like with the biological drive to breathe. Think about if I was to tell you to hold your breath for a minute, and you would sit there, right? How much would you be thinking about breathing in that time? How much would you be wondering, okay, when can I have my next breath? Because a minute's a long time from now. I'm uncomfortable. And how much would that kind of take over your brain and start to make you think about this all the time? So the same thing applies with food, guys. When you are restrictive, you're going to think about it more. It's going to be more on your brain. It's going to be more uncomfortable. It's going to take over your thoughts. And even though you may have binged and now you're restricting because you're trying to like catch up and compensate, the body doesn't know the difference. The body's very confused by all the way an eating disorder can completely throw it out of balance. And so when we think that we have control over these natural biological drives and things, we end up pushing ourselves further away from our body and the relationship we want to have with it, one of trust, one that we know that we can we can trust our body and our body can trust us a mutual mutual relationship there so by staying consistently fed it's a way of earning your body's trust because you're you're telling it hey i'm here for you hey you 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 can have this this is this is how we're going to keep ourselves going and this is this is our energy this is our fuel source we're going to keep it going the more if we're if we are so intermittent with it and we don't give it uh, we give it inconsistently, that's when we start to develop trust issues with our body more. Another way I like to think about it is like think about a relationship and if someone's really consistent with you and you know like they're going to text you every morning or um, just are there for you, like there are people in your life that are consistent with you, how much does that mean to you? How much does that mean to you to have these consistent people? I mean, this is, this is like the beauty in life. If you have inconsistent people in your life, how dysregulating can that be? Like, how can that throw you off? How can that put you into a state of uh, like hyper hyper awareness? I, I, I've had a lot of inconsistent people in my life, and I can tell you, it's something that is very unnerving. You're like, I don't know, right? Like. And so that is what we want to try to repair with our body. We don't want our body to be like, whoa, what's going to happen? And so when we can stay consistently fed, and this is what we work on in the Courage Club, is the first milestone is the food milestone, and this is where we help people become brave eaters. Now, a brave eater is someone who eats balanced, regular, adequately, has a variety in their diet and a variety in in their food choices. And they have eating out experiences. That's what we call a brave eater, B-R-A-V-E, balanced, regular, adequate variety in eating out experiences. And so this is all part of that staying consistently fed, right? That's that balance, regularity, and that adequacy. And it's important to work with somebody who's a professional. I think if you're just going through this process and you haven't had any uh, type of nutritional support is just understand like what is consistent and what is regular and what's adequate, because you may have some ideas that you think in your mind that have been uh, planted there from, really the diet industry that may be throwing you off from what is real and I know for me mini meals was my thing right because that's what all the magazines told me it was like have mini meals but I actually needed way more than the mini meal
1: what's a mini meal a mini meal like a, <laughs> I haven't heard of that before a mini
0: meal would you have like five like five i mean this is where you'd have like five small meals a day like
1: another word for a snack
0: yes <laughs> much. It would like be the same amount. You're like, your five mini meals always stay consistently fed. But that's what I'm trying to say is like, that was like their thing. Like the diet to be like, stay consistently fed with your five snacks. Right. (laughs) But then I was like, whoa, no, like I need a meal. Like I recognize that now, like as I'm now, now I'm an intuitive eater. Like I recognize like I want a meal. I'm not someone like I'll have snacks too, but like I can't do these little mini meals. But technically was I staying consistently fed with a mini meal, consistently underfed. But I was so in my mind, I thought I was being consistently fed because I was having meals every three to four hours, but I wasn't eating enough in these meals. So that that is important, I think, to get like a a professional perspective on it so they can so they can kind of cross check you cuz y- y- you don't know like or what you don't know you don't know and so you may think that you're doing something that is helpful and maybe you need a little more than you actually think you do yeah i
1: did i definitely <laughs> did yeah no that's that's an interesting take I, maybe another way to describe this would be instead of staying consistently fed like stay consistently nourished or satisfied or you bring up a really good point, though, to reach out for professional help. Nutritional rehabilitation is an important and nuanced part of recovery. And there's lots of eating disorder dietitians out there. I encourage you to find one who's anti-diet, intuitive eating, haze-informed. These are really the best kind of professionals that can help you with recovering from an eating disorder. Because unfortunately, there are a lot of dietitians out there who are impacted by diet culture. So when you're recovering from an eating disorder, try and find one that's more aligned with pro-recovery, eating disorder recovery, uh, education, and practices, and that will help you to take this even further. 100%. So remember, staying consistently fed or consistently nourished is key to reducing food obsessions, no matter what your body size is. You're not exempt from this, no matter what your body size is. Even if you struggle with binge eating, staying consistently fed can help to reduce binges and help you heal. Food is fuel. That is our motto of the day. <laughs> Now for our last way to overcome food and exercise obsession. Number five, embrace joyful movement. So joyful movement means moving your body in a way that is enjoyable for you. And some days you may want to get your heart pumping. You want to get out there and be active. And other days you might want to take a slower, more leisurely approach to movement Other days, you rest, you don't move at all because that's extremely important too. Um, Joyful movement has no rules and it's all about what's doing what's best for you in the moment. And if you're used to exercising or compulsive exercise in your eating disorder, you feel like you are doing it to burn calories or to compensate for what you ate or to get a smaller body. And the idea of joyful movement can sound so opposite from what you're used to when you've been struggling with an eating disorder. And Jessica, I know joyful movement is a part of your life because when I came to see you, we were driving around Austin where she lives and we like we passed by the YMCA like five (laughs) times. She's like, there's the YMCA. I do my dance class there. There it is again. I love it there. I go to my classes there. like she, And she's always like, when we're working, she's like, I got to go do dance now. Or she's all about joyful movement. And she's talked about how fun that is for her. So Jessica, I'd love for you to share what your experience has been with embracing joyful movement after living with an eating disorder.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started on like Zumba and cardio dance funk. <laughs> like, I'm in love. Uh, the process though of, of, you know, finding joyful movement recovery has been something that's been unfolding for me. And it continues to unfold because let's be real. Like when we're in this society, it's like, we're, we're always, we're still going to hear messages about working out and exercise. And it is great to connect with your body and to have movement and to feel empowered and to feel strong in your body. And I have always been an athlete. Like that has been an identity of mine for practically my whole life. I love, athletics. I love being sweaty and like going out there and feeling strong. And so when I can start to put that, especially in the recovery process, it was starting to separate that though from calories and separating that from something I needed to do in order to earn food. Or if I ate, now I have to go work out. There was always kind of this if then statement, if I do this, then I do that. And and when you start to embrace the joyful movement, you separate that. It's no longer about what the activity does for you like in terms of burning calories. It's about what does it give to you in terms of feeding your life force. So when I go to a dance class, I I say it's like, for me, it's like my therapy time. I'm going to that dance class and I'm just gonna be a little light beam of love and just allow joy to pour through me and out me and just all over the whole whole YMCA. (laughs) But that like for me is like, wow, you know? So finding something that is joyful for you in some ways you can find is maybe some look at what you liked when you were little, like what, what were activities that brought you joy. And it really is about this like childlike nature. If you can find that, just like that you feel like you are enlivened by this, that it's, it's fun. Um, I know one woman that I worked with in, you know, she, would go on bike rides with her her kids. And before that was not considered, you know, quote unquote, good enough for her because she needed to work out and need a certain like number of reps and cardio and th- and she would do that instead of going with her daughter and going bike riding with her. And so she realized, wow, like you know what? I have to do one or the other because I don't have the time to do both. But, you know what's so much more meaningful for me and joyful is going bike riding with my daughter, not being in my basement doing all these reps. And, you know, and so when we start to bring joyful movement in, it can be something that we invite others into our world to do with us. I found that yoga was something that was a joyful movement for me. and You know, you have people in your yoga class and with my dance class, I have all these people that I, you know, high five and I get excited to see and everything. Mm So there's this opportunity for you to connect with others, connect with your body, connect with your your just this joyful nature within you that isn't as, you know, set on the time and set on the reps and set on how many calories you need to burn. And I just really encourage you to, to try these, these types of activities out. I don't think it's ever this like light switch on off, like all of a sudden you just go from the way you're exercise, you related to exercise before to all of a sudden just being like, now I don't equate. Like it, there's a, there's like this kind of transitional phase that you go through with it, um, where you still may, struggle to think about well how many calories did i just have if i did that. So it and what, why i'm saying this is just to not judge yourself that if you're like trying this joyful movement out and you're still thinking about calories and all that it's, it's just it's just this, this process that you kind of naturally just transition into over time and finding ways to have more fun and be embodied still can can be a great way to to work on that. So for me, it's dance. I actually know that Alex, the listener who prompted this question or inspired this this show, you know, she loves to dance. So Alex, uh, how can you make dance be something that you can turn to as a pro-recovery joyful movement activity?
1: Yeah. Now, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to share some of my journey with movement and going from harmful, toxic ideas around exercise to more joyful movement. And one big thing that has helped me is a discerning question, which is, would you still be doing the exercise that you're doing right now if you knew 100% for certain that it would not make your body size smaller? Mm. And that helped me really discern what is and isn't joyful movement. And much like food, I had a very like moralized view of, of exercise. I have a dad who's still... To this day, is kind of a gym nut. He's always at the gym and always talking about movement. And if you're if you're exercising, you're doing something good. If you're not exercising, you're doing something bad. So it was moralized for me, much like food was. And uh, I think it's interesting you're bringing up your friend with a bike ride because that was something that I'm reclaiming bike rides because with my dad, it was very much not joyful movement. He would take we'd go for long bike rides when I was a kid and I was a teenager, and it was like we're going for like. Two hours straight, oh, well. <laughs> as hard as possible, as as far as we can. He's going so fast, I got to keep up, and it was like it was exhausting, and it wasn't fun. It was like he felt like he's like a drill sergeant, and like I have to keep up. It was like boot camp. It wasn't fun at all, and so part of now I consider bike riding to be a form of joyful movement, and I've reclaimed that, and I'm so glad it's fall now and it's cooling down because I live in North Carolina and the summers are like hell on earth hot and humid and I do not go bike riding and I'm like yeah it's bike riding season again I can get back on the on the city bikes that I rent and go around and that that's just so freeing to me and I go at a comfortable pace there's no rush there's no one to keep up with it's just I feel the breeze go through my hair I'm not thinking about calories I'm not thinking about my body I'm just thinking about being out in the world and there's a big like you kind of mentioned the social aspect like i'm a social person myself and part of my joyful movement is just getting out in the world it's really about connection and being social first and then the movement comes with it like bike ride with other people or go out for a walk um that's been that's been my journey with it and i'm still this is still one thing like that is much more a work in progress for my recovery journey i'm still rebuilding my relationship to movement i'm still Reclaiming it, it was very kind of traumatic. Like I had a lot of like I, I'm mentioning my dad here, and you know he used to take me to the gym when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, and it was just it was it was, it was really harmful. <laughs> um, like I, I'm getting kind of like weird. Like my tone's kind of weird now because I'm I'm not really sure how to articulate it. It's like it was complicated. And it was it was upsetting, and I'm still working through it. I'm still reclaiming movement, and it's been. Really exciting to do that and know that, yeah, movement is just about enjoying the world. It's about enjoying life. It's about enjoying people and connection. And the movement that we deal with that is just it's part of the fun. And I have connected with a group where I live here in Raleigh. They're called um Current Wellness, and they're like a body liberation gym, but they call themselves a movement studio. <laughs> and they have like, Like intuitive eating counselors, they they're like fat positive, size inclusive, body liberation focused, and I've like, I have not done a class with them because I'm still healing my relationship to being with a gym environment. Even though I know that this would be the safest gym environment I could go to emotionally, I'm still working through it. But I've connected with them like they do hangouts outside of their movement studio like in parks or just casual hangouts we go out for dinner and just connecting with that group has been so exciting and i'm like i'm putting this out there cuz i want to stay accountable but i think i'm ready soon or if i'm not i'm making the decision to be ready like we talked about in fear <laughs> recently um, i'm i think i want to do a yoga class there for the yes. first time and i and i've got some friends there and i've made some connections i'm getting to know people so i'm like this is another step and i'm really excited to to do this so this is another thing that i'm still Kind of like on shaky ground with a little bit, and getting my sea legs <laughs> and, and em- embracing <laughs> movement. But um, I'm excited to share that, and I'll keep I'll keep the listeners updated about my my journey with that. There, I love
0: that. It <laughs> was so important what you mentioned about like the motivation behind it. Like, would I still be doing this if a, my 100 certain that my body size would not change as a result? And and so that that's a great question to ask. And you know, I remember back when I was at the height of my eating disorder and I was, you know, doing all the things in terms of the gym. And I, and I was, that's when I had the most injuries. Like that's when I was the most, I wasn't in the best. All I can say is that when you embrace joyful movement, just be really awesomely curious, like surprised about how amazing your body can respond to new types of movement that aren't as aggressive and as aren't compensatory and trying to really push yourself so hard and for all my athletes out there I hear you I see you you can still have joyful movement and still feel and be an athlete and it's just it's just a different relationship to it um yeah oh my god I'm excited for you to to go to your and that's one thing I like about my YMCA too is like there's all body sizes and shapes and ages there like I just love that
1: yeah no I'm so glad there's safe places like that that exist for whether you have an eating disorder or not I think it's so important and it's I'm I'm really happy that you have that and that I found that and we'll keep embracing it and I also want to throw in on this topic as well like it's okay to take a short break or an extended break from exercise and movement if you need to you don't you don't have to move it's okay to not move especially if you are struggling with an eating disorder and you're struggling with exercise obsession it's okay to take a step back and reevaluate and get grounded again. Like you don't, I, I just wanted to throw that in there too. Cause I think sometimes it can be important and necessary to take a break from movement depending on what you need in your journey. I know I needed that for a while and some other people might as well. Yeah. I did very light walks with my dog just to like walk my dog, but just like around the yeah. block, like very light walks. <laughs> I mean, I did that for
0: years. I, I had to, yeah. I had to repair that relationship
1: for me. Yeah. 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 Years. It can take years. It takes time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jessica, for sharing your experience with Embracing Joyful Movement. I think this has been um, a fun one to talk about. And that wraps up our five ways to overcome food and exercise obsession, which is based on a question from Alex in New York City. Thank you again, Alex, for your question. And to review, our five things are, number one, neutralize your relationship with food. Number two, use mindful self-observation. Number three, avoid comparisons number four feed yourself consistently and number five embrace joyful movement
0: awesome thanks for the question alex well my warrior friend thank you for having the discipline to listen in If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this, warrior.